So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains discussion and some brief description of torture, as well as discussion of sexual violence against minors, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. There were a lot of people telling Rangina Hamidi that she shouldn't return to Afghanistan. Many of my friends, family members, colleagues were advising me against going, and I understood their reasons, obviously. First off, she was a single woman. And besides, she had barely even lived there, having left as a child when her family fled the Soviets. But she felt she had a responsibility. She'd been raised and educated in the United States and given opportunities that few Afghan women had. It was 2003, and she thought she could really help rebuild her country. So finally, when I did decide to go, while the rest of the family and friends all thought that I was crazy. My father, he looked at me, he's like, you know, this is your desire, this is your wish, go follow it. And if you love doing what you're gonna do, you're gonna do great things for your country and your people. So she went, but unlike many of her other American-raised Afghan friends and colleagues who were joining in the effort, Rangina didn't head to the country's capital. I didn't wanna go to couples because I didn't speak Dari too well. And I was much more comfortable with my mother's tongue of Pashto. And I said, why not go to Kandahar? And nobody was going to Kandahar at that time. 2003, nobody was talking about Kandahar. When she got settled, it was hard not to notice the hostility. So when I did return, it was kind of odd for distant family members, relatives who were still living in Kandahar, for them to accept that how would my father allow his single young daughter to come all by herself and work with foreigners in an office. And I know that I did quite quickly become the talk of town because then, of course, the first thing you do is you attack the morality of that individual. She would call her father and tell him about the kinds of stories that their relatives were telling about her. But he remained supportive. His response back to me was, Rangina, if you're going to sit and allow these people to say the things that they want to say and then you listen to it, You might as well just pack your things and come back home to America. But you've gone there with a mission. You're doing great work. God sees your work. You know what you're doing. I know what my daughter's doing. I don't care about the world and neither should you. And I think just having that kind of a courageous and a supporting father was probably the most important element of my life and making the decision to return back. During that time, her father would come to visit her in Kandahar. 
And he just started falling in love with Afghanistan more and more. Rangina's father was close with Hamid Karzai, who was then the president of Afghanistan. President Hamid Karzai asked him, come work here. Why are you still working in America? Karzai wanted Rangina's father to work in the Ministry of Finance, but he refused. He says, you know, all of the ministers that you've brought in your cabinet, most of them are warlords, drug lords, they're thugs and criminals. And how am I going to bring about change under their leadership? Instead, he asked to be appointed as mayor of Kandahar City. All in all, an unglamorous post. But his reasoning was simple. A mayor could make a difference in the things that actually matter to people. Karzai agreed, and Rangina's father became the mayor. You know, in a patriarchal society like Afghanistan, the minute my father became mayor, Rangina Hamidi no longer existed. She became the daughter of Mr. Mayor. She didn't mind, though. She was proud of the work she saw her father doing. But he quickly began to face hurdles. Rangina's father became mayor in 2007, with violence in Kandahar continually getting worse. But the Taliban were far from the only problem. He wanted to do more, but his fight in the city was against the warlords and drug lords who had confiscated government land, who had built you know, high rises, who refused to pay the appropriate taxes and fees back to the city. And so all of these people all of a sudden very quickly started to have a fight with my father because my father refused to allow them the freedom that they had been living and working under up until my father's arrival. But in March 2009, Rangina's opinion about her father's work began to change. I was sitting in a celebration program for Afghan women, and we heard a bomb blast. That was just a normal part of life in Kandahar by then. I start noticing I'm sitting in this event and everybody's calling me, you know, my cousins, my aunt, my dad's sister, and you know, colleagues and people that I know, it's like one after another after another. A government official that she knew came up to her and told her quietly that there had been an attack. She should check up on her father. The blast that we heard was an attempt to attack my father. Her father's enemies had planted a roadside bomb on a motorcycle. His car was totaled. His driver was injured. For some miraculous reason, he survived it. And it was right next to the municipality office. He picked up the phone and he's laughing, you know, in his jolly voice. He's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And he's laughing and I'm like, what's going on? What is going on? So I'm I'm just, I'm numb. She got a ride to his office. And I go to my dad and he has glass all in his hair. He has white hair and he has little glass pieces all over his hair. His face is all dusty. And people are around him. And so I went and hugged him. And I'm like, what's going on? He's like, well, they tried to get rid of me and they didn't succeed. And I think it's that day when I just became scared and angry. And I didn't want him there anymore. Because I knew knew the country had enough criminals running it. But, you know, when it hits home that close to you, you start seeing things in a different light. Rangina feared for her father's life. She was right, too. I knew that day that uh, the enemies of my father were not going to leave him alone. And I knew that the enemies of my father were not the Taliban. 
During the war in Afghanistan, it was clear who the enemy was, the Taliban, a group of religious zealots who harbored terrorists, killed with fervor, and enslaved women. And many Kandaharis had welcomed the fall of the Taliban regime in 2001. But in the years when Canada was fighting in Kandahar, why is it that so many Afghans joined up with the Taliban? And if the Taliban were our enemies, who exactly were our friends and allies? In many cases, they were torturers, rapists, and murderers themselves. I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. The Kandahar that Rangina Hamidi moved to in 2003 was far different from the place that her parents had described her whole life. My parents grew us up telling us stories of these orchards and vineyards and, you know, fruits and flowers. So that very first day, I remember not seeing any paved roads, hardly any trees. I couldn't see a single wall that didn't have bullet targets or just pieces of the wall just carved off by a bomb attack, for example. But that didn't last for long. Over the next three years, she saw the city change right before her eyes. Roads were paved, trees were planted, and walls were painted. And so the gray, dull picture of Kandahar City started to be transformed into vibrating colors on walls. The next few years, Rangina's optimism grew, and many Afghans in Kandahar appeared to be happy with the international presence. If I can call any golden era in the past 20 years, it would be that period from 2001 until 2005, 6 ish There were jobs, there was hope, there was opportunity, there was building, there was construction. In short order, Rangina became one of the most prominent women's rights activists in the city. By 2005, as the insurgency began to build, Rangina says that people in Kandahar City began to hear stories about what was happening in the countryside. And they painted a very different picture. More and more people started talking about innocent people being taken by the international forces, NATO forces, either by bad translation and or if you were you know, on the bad side of the warlords that the international troops were aligning themselves with, then you automatically, you know, became an enemy and you were branded as a Talib. That's when big people really began to start to question the intentions of the international community there or this close alignment with the warlords and drug lords on the ground. They really began to see Is America and its allies really here to help us as a people and as a country? Or is it only here to help the criminals, the thugs, the the murderers, the killers, the destructive forces of this society? One of the men responsible for many of those dark stories coming out of the countryside would go on to be an essential NATO ally and one of the most powerful men in all of Afghanistan. 
Abdul Razak. It's impossible to overstate the significance of Abdul Razak in Kandahar. During the first years of the occupation, he rose from the commander of the border police to perhaps the single most important military ally that NATO forces had. And he became a hero to Kandaharis who opposed the Taliban. By the 2010s, his face was everywhere in Kandahar City, looking down on people from billboards or pinned to the windows of taxicabs. He also happened to be a murderer and a drug trafficker. Matthew Akins is a Canadian journalist who lived and reported in Afghanistan for years. And he first encountered Abdul Razak through a set of curious circumstances before he had become an icon. I was in this border town in Pakistan. And I was walking down the street. I just come from Iran and a land cruiser pulled up and some men inside asked me if I was a tourist. And then when they found that I was, they invited me to come with them. And this was a city that was pretty notorious for kidnapping and all sorts of political and criminal violence, drug smuggling. The Taliban were active there. So I probably shouldn't have gotten in the car with them, but something about them struck me as non-threatening. So perhaps foolishly, he got in and got to know them all. They were working with police and other corrupt officials in both Pakistan and Afghanistan. And that's how I learned about Abdul Razak. Abdul Razak was the head of the border police, based out of the frontier town of Spin Baldak. Well, Razak was said to be young, brave, fierce enemy of the Taliban, ruthless with those who crossed him. Razak came from a family that was linked to some of the most important commanders in Spinboldak during the Soviet and Mujahideen time. In his early 20s, Razak was selected by Afghan power brokers to be the head of the border police. Because of his youth, I think maybe some more powerful behind-the-scenes figures thought he was someone who could be easily controlled. But Razak quickly showed that he had his own capabilities and... Again, with the the backing of a number of influential businessmen and politicians, he quickly rose to become, first of all, master of that border crossing, but eventually one of the most powerful men in Afghanistan. Matthew's new Afghan friends asked him if he wanted to go across the border to meet Razak. And once again, perhaps foolishly, he agreed. My smuggler friends brought me around, just sort of detoured around the official crossing. By the time he got there, Razak had already left on business. So Matthew could only wait. I don't know if I had known it was going to be 10 days, maybe I wouldn't have stayed there. But every day it was sort of like, Razik's coming tomorrow, inshallah. At the same time, though, I was able to observe the dynamics of this border crossing, the way that the border police and smugglers were basically the same people and hung out together and controlled this economy. At one point, the Canadian soldiers in the nearby outpost came to check on the strange foreigner who'd come to town. They were concerned maybe for my safety or maybe concerned that I was up to no good and had me brought in for for questioning. And I saw just how much they relied on Razik's men as their eyes and ears and their kind of local proxy force. He also learned quite quickly that Razik, this man that NATO forces were relying on so much, was shipping huge quantities of opium out of Afghanistan. Through his control of this essential border crossing, Abdul Razak had turned himself into one of the country's biggest drug traffickers. After 10 long days of waiting, Abdul Razak finally came to town. Matthew went to see him. 
his grandmother had passed away. So he was having a ceremony. So there was a big crowd of mourners. People would come to offer their condolences. And they were lined up outside being searched. There was heavy security because Razak was even then a top target of the Taliban. We're let in. We go into the inner compound and Razak's sitting there. You know, he's just, there's just a line of people waiting to shake his hand and get a little FaceTime. If he was surprised to hear me introduce as a Canadian, he didn't show it. I mean, I, I looked pretty Afghan at that house and I was uh, speaking in Persian to him. So I don't even know if he understood, but he smiled, shook my hand and that was about it. But I was struck by just how young he looked. He didn't seem like this fearsome character that he'd been made out to be. But of course, looks can be deceiving. Matthew Aiken's interest in Abdul Razak didn't end with this brief meeting. He would soon discover that Razak was engaging in worse crimes. And these crimes get to the very heart of so much that went wrong in the war in Afghanistan. On March 20th, 2006, just as Canadians were moving into Kandahar, a man named Shin Nurzai went to Kabul for a party with 15 of his friends. There was sort of a vendetta between him and Razak. Nurzai was a rival smuggler, and Abdul Razak blamed him for the death of his brother. But crucially, the two came from different tribes that had been fighting for dominance in the region for a long time. Razak's tribe, the Achakzai, had allied themselves with the communists during the Soviet invasion. When the Taliban came to power, the Nurzais, who were their kind of smuggling rivals, the Nurzais became dominant. When the Taliban government fell in 2001, the situation flipped once again. Razak's tribe, the Achakzai, were now ascendant. Many of them were given important positions in the new Afghan government, which is how Abdul Razak became the head of the border police. And he had been provided training by American military contractors, including Blackwater. But now that you understand that, let's get back to Shin Nurzai and his 15 friends visiting Kabul. It was Persian New Year, and they went to a party. And there they were sort of tricked by their host, drugged, you know, bound and put into a convoy of land cruisers, driven all the way south to Kandahar by Razak's men. And then Razak and his men took them out to the desert by the border, executed them at close range with automatic gunfire. Abdul Razak told his bosses and the press that these men lying dead in the desert were Taliban fighters who had been killed in a gun battle. And that was the story that ran in the newspapers. But when criminal investigators went to look at the scene, they didn't find men who looked like insurgents. For one, the dead men were all wearing suits. And all 16 had been clearly executed, including one of them, who was a teenager. Within weeks, Afghan President Hamid Karzai was shown evidence of the massacre by the investigators. But he helped cover up the crime, and the Afghan government backed Razak's version of events. These were Taliban fighters who'd been killed in a clash. Nothing to see here. That's the thing is it didn't really affect Razak's career because he went on to, to rise in power, in wealth, and eventually became admired by many people around the country, sort of a national hero for his fight against the Taliban. A few months later, the Afghan government decided that they needed to send security forces to quell increasing resistance in the Panjwai Valley just outside of Kandahar City. And they sent Abdul Razak. This was in the months just preceding Operation Medusa, which we went into in depth in our last episode. 
and one reason why Canadian forces encountered so many more Taliban fighters during that operation than they expected is because of Abdul Razak. The region they were sent to pacify was settled with many members of the Norzai tribe, Razak's rivals. Rumors quickly began to spread that Razak's men were out to kill any and all Norzai in the area. They quickly gathered up arms and rose up against the government forces. And considering the fact that Razak had just kidnapped and murdered 15 Norzai men just months before, maybe they were right to be worried. Razak had to retreat in humiliation, and just a few weeks later, Canadian soldiers would launch Operation Medusa, their offensive against the Taliban, whose ranks were now swelling with Nurzai seeking protection from their tribal rivals. And for so much of the war, this was one of the fundamental dynamics at play. People weren't necessarily joining the Taliban because they were religious zealots. What has been happening in Afghanistan is a civil war, primarily, so it involves Afghan groups that are struggling with each other for control of land, of resources, politics. And when foreign groups intervene, they often, sometimes inadvertently, without understanding really the dynamics on the ground, end up supporting one group against another. I think the foreigners, the Canadians and Americans were definitely aware of, but I don't think they understood how little it actually had to do with, say, ideology or or, or really supporting the Taliban a lot, you know, These were struggles over resources in the borderlands. Razak became the police chief for all of Kandahar in 2011. And throughout the war, despite the knowledge of his human rights abuses, he remained a key NATO ally. Razak was just one of the many unsavory characters that Canadian and NATO forces backed during the war in Kandahar, including Gul Aga Shurzai, one of the province's first post-Taliban governors, and Ahmed Wali Karzai, the president's brother and another known drug trafficker. Sure, these men were corrupt and brutal, but they were seen as necessary. That was the dilemma that the Canadians and then the Americans had found themselves in, that, that they were never really able to solve throughout the rest of the war, though they tried in different ways, which was that their allies were criminals, were human rights abusers, were people who were committing some of the very crimes that were causing people to join the Taliban, that were delegitimizing the government. But they were, these were also effective people in the military sense, in the battlefield. They were fighting a vicious war against the Taliban who were also involved in drugs and crime and kidnapping and torture and human rights abuses. So it was a dirty war on both sides. And people like Razak knew how to fight that war, but they were also a kind of cancer eating the government from the inside and preventing you know, the rule of law. Razak gutted the police force. He gutted the criminal investigations teams. He subsumed everything to his kind of personal authority. I think that he was seen as a necessary evil. Like Rangina Hamidi, Ahmed Mulgari felt compelled to come back to Afghanistan. I was born in Afghanistan. I moved to Canada as a refugee and uh, landed in Montreal moved to Ottawa, and became a citizen. In 2007, he was hired by the Canadian forces to be a language and cultural advisor in Kandahar. I was basically uh, serving the HQ, the command element, a Canadian task force in Kandahar. And Ahmed possessed a skill absolutely essential 
to the success of the Canadian mission. He spoke Pashto, the native language of the majority of Kandaharis. Afghanistan is a linguistically diverse country with two official languages, Dari and Pashto. Dari is a Persian dialect that serves as the country's lingua franca, especially in the north and in Kabul. But in Kandahar, most people were native Pashto speakers. Few spoke Dari. When he began his work in Afghanistan, Ahmed was shocked to discover that most of the interpreters he was working alongside didn't speak a lick of Pashto. And then I started speaking with these people. And then some of them, they were giving papers, and then they were coming to me, and then they were asking me to translate for them in Pashto the text that they were giving. They were about as useful as bringing Portuguese translators to rural Quebec. So I kind of saw that, okay, maybe there is a problem. Ahmed says he witnessed interpreters completely fabricate translations from the handful of words that they could pick up. He says that he saw Afghans get killed because of this. When he raised the issue with soldiers, Ahmed says that he was accused of harboring ethnic prejudices against the other translators. But bit by bit, Ahmed was able to make a difference, especially because he had the ear of some of the top military and civilian officials in the occupation forces. And one of his most important contributions was simply educating Canadian forces about Pashtun culture. And I told them that the Pashtuns will not forgive and forget. They will give back to you in one way or another if you hurt them, particularly if you go after their women. If you raid their houses, they will give back to you in one way or another. So initially, they were thinking that, you know, I'm just talking nonsense. But then the number of casualties went up. And then the general saw this, that, okay, this guy makes sense. He helped create relationships between the Canadian military and respected local leaders. And then I told him, I say, okay, be friend with these people. Use these people, their influence, to help your soldiers. So I said, we have this commonality between the two, and we can work on it, and we can build on it. And this is what I did. And it was very successful. And it was successful to a point where the elders, they came to the Canadian forces, they told the Canadian forces that they want me to be a governor of Kandahar. Now, when Ahmed told me that there had been a movement to make him governor of Kandahar, I didn't exactly believe him at first. It wouldn't be the first time someone's exaggerated to me in an interview, but a quick search of the archives showed that Ahmed was telling the truth. Kandahari elders were telling journalists that they wanted the Canadians to install him as governor. And it was just because they knew that I was sincere and I would really wanted to help them. But of course, Kandahar already had a governor. He was a man that Ahmed Mulgari had gotten to know well. And he wasn't at all pleased when he heard about these rumors. His name was Asadullah Khalid. I worked with his, his circle. And I, I start befriending his circles to know what Asadullah Khalid is about. Khalid was from Kandahar. He was a young man who had come up through the ranks of the anti-Taliban fighters in the years before the American invasion. And in 2003, he was appointed governor of his home province of Ghazni, and then two years later, he took over Kandahar. Ahmed was never impressed by Khalid. 
He had this attitude of childish attitude. He had no respect and the way he was acting, the way he was behaving, it was like a child. He did not resemble or display any uh, characteristics of a, a mature politician or a mature leader. He took everything as a joke. Because he was governor of Kandahar, many Canadians worked very closely with Asadullah Khalid, including, according to a book by historian Sean Maloney, a Canadian forces major named Harjit Sajjan. The Canadians shared intelligence with Khalid, coordinated attacks against the Taliban, and worked on governance issues. They would even sometimes play video games with him at the lavish governor's compound in Kandahar. Ahmed Mulgari says that for a long time, he was on good terms with him as well. But Khalid is without a doubt one of the most brutal men in recent Afghan history. Leaked American diplomatic cables characterized him as, quote, exceptionally corrupt and incompetent. Multiple sources told Human Rights Watch that he used his security forces to kidnap and rape women and girls. And he was a torturer. But according to numerous media reports and first-hand accounts, Khalid didn't just order the torture of prisoners. He would do it himself. You know, everybody has a hobby. One of his aides told me that his hobby is that when he gets drunk, he would call the NDS and he would bring the detainee which was transferred to them. And then, you know, he was taking their, their, their nails. This was his hobby, to seeing them suffer. Khalid had a chamber right in the governor's compound for this very purpose. One of Khalid's aides even gave Ahmed a tour. He showed me something. It looked like a, a, a blood on the wall. I didn't believe it, but they're saying that when they pulled the nails of one of the person, the blood uh, went to the wall. And then now you see, we're painting it three, four times, but this blood again appears on the wall. This was a story he told. This was the man that Ahmed had accidentally angered by becoming so popular with some locals that they wanted to make him governor. One day, Ahmed was in a Canadian forces convoy that was on its way to meet Khalid at his compound. Well, we were en route to see him. That's where we got the VBID attacks on me, where we were blown up by 1.5 tons of explosives. Their convoy had been attacked by a car bomb. I would suspect that he was behind it. And Ahmed had good reason to think that Khalid had it out for him. Khalid had railed against Ahmed in the Canadian media, claiming that Ahmed was behind a plot to usurp him. And Khalid certainly had the capability to carry out this kind of attack. In 2007, five United Nations workers were killed in a similar attack. Chris Alexander, who was a top UN official at the time and went on to be a minister in Stephen Harper's cabinet, told Canadian officials that Khalid had ordered the attack because the UN convoy was on its way to destroy one of his poppy fields. Ahmed remembers one day when Khalid introduced him to his bomb guy in his office. He told us that this person was the person who actually did the VBID attack on the mosque where Mullah Umar, the leader of Taliban, had celebrated the Eid prayer. He said this person actually blew up and tried to blow up Mullah Umar. That person was sitting with him, and you see, he's an expert in IEDs and making VBIDs. I, I don't have a solid proof that he did it, but I wouldn't doubt that he probably was behind. 
Khalid would remain as governor of Kandahar until 2008. Needless to say, Ahmed does not have a high opinion of him. So he was part of a big problem in Kandahar. And I would blame him for the misery of people in Kandahar, Asadullah Khalid. I'm not a fan of him. There's one more story I want to tell that I think might help people understand why some Kandaharis were sympathetic to the Taliban. Just a warning, this next section deals with the sexual exploitation of minors. You'll remember Bruce Monkor, one of the soldiers involved in Operation Medusa from our last episode. I remember my first night on duty where I was like on lookout in an observation post, and I was walking, and I saw these two look like these two Afghani's uh, wrestling, and I was like, "What the hell? That's weird." And I was like, "Holy shit! Looks like they're having sex." What Bruce was witnessing wasn't consensual sex, but the rape of an underage soldier by his superior. The term for this kind of exploitation of boys by powerful men in Afghanistan is called butcha bazi. Here's David Puglesi, defense reporter for the Ottawa Citizen. So this disgusting problem was there for years. And so in the early days, one of the reasons the Taliban gained support among the people was they cracked down on this. So when they came to power, if you're a warlord or an individual of power, and some of these guys would have sex slaves, children, Taliban started hanging them, right, and uh, executing them. And this was approved of by the, by the locals. But in the years of the American and NATO occupation, this kind of sexual exploitation increased substantially. Some of these powerful warlords, some of these Afghan army commanders, they had children as sex slave boys, usually. And this was well known among coalition forces. So what happened was coalition forces, they just ignored it. And that's basically what Bruce Moncor was told to do when he saw this rape taking place. I ran upstairs to where the, the thing is, and this guy had been there for seven months. I was just you know, first couple of days in, I said to him, I said, hey, like, there's a couple guys down there freaking having sex. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's Man Sex Thursday. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, every Thursday, these guys, they have sex with each other. I was like, what? What are you talking? He's like, yeah, if they get too close to the stairs, just throw water on them. They'll, they'll, they'll go away. These were our allies. You had soldiers that were raping the 17-year-olds that were being pulled in. According to interviews that David has done with other soldiers, as well as documents he's declassified, Canadian military commanders knew that some Afghan officers were engaging in this sexual violence, but they chose to ignore it. I talked to one soldier. He was telling me about uh, they saw one kid, one child, you know, a young boy, and he had a bell tied around his foot. If that boy ever tried to escape, the Afghan commander would hear the bell going off, right? Like, you know, as he tried to run away. I mean, there is nothing that that kid could have done and to escape. But this was known. I've talked to a number of soldiers who said, yeah, we saw it. There was some who said, what could we do? You know, we can't go up against the Afghan National Army commander because they're our, they're our ally. Yet we're selling, the Defense Department and Canadian Forces is selling this mission to the public as uh, helping the people, but turning a blind eye to pedophiles. The fact that this institutionalized sexual abuse of minors actually increased during the NATO occupation is nauseating 
And it's just another one of the factors for why some Afghans were turning to the Taliban. Add to that the brutality and corruption of many of our Afghan allies, the elevation of some tribes at the expense of others, the eradication of poppy crops that left many farmers impoverished, and the airstrikes that killed thousands and thousands of innocent people. Many Afghans felt that they had good reason to take up arms against the government and NATO forces. And these were just some of the hurdles that men like Ghulam Haidar Hamidi, Rangina Hamidi's father, who had become the mayor of Kandahar, had to contend with. Here he is speaking to a news crew shortly after the attempt on his life that you heard about at the top of the show. I'm feeling now that we can bring change in the city. Don't worry. I will not die when God is not killing me. He had to deal with corrupt killers like Asadullah Khalid as a matter of course. He might not have liked Asadullah Khalid politically, but if Asadullah Khalid was not going to intervene in his plans and strategies for the city, then my dad was just all happy with him saying, good for you, good for me, let's get this work done. But some of his biggest obstacles were those corrupt warlords who continued to hold sway in Kandahar. He's like, if you're going to build a building on a government-confiscated land, first of all, you need to pay for that land. We're not letting you have you know, a hot spot in the middle of the heart of Kandahar City for free because you confiscated it. Second, there's some conditions to how many floors of a building you can build, to how many bathrooms need to be. But that's the kind of projects my father was working on, was to make things seem somewhat normal, somewhat within a system. He was trying to work in a place and in a country among people with a systematic mind. And unfortunately, there was absolutely no system in place to receive him. The system that had been built up by the West didn't have room for men like Rangina's father. And on July 27, 2011, that system would crush him entirely. The night before I actually fought with him, I argued with him over this land issue. He was trying, as mayor, he was trying to, to get land back from a warlord's son who had confiscated the land and kind of distributed among people, like selling it illegally, basically. Whereas my father, as mayor, wanted to use that particular land to kind of create a systematic plots to then give to all these people who wanted to get plots to build a home. And of course, the warlord's son had already done his job. He'd already sold it to people, you know, with crooked walls and crooked. There was no street. There was no system. It's just you come and grab as much as you can and you pay the price for it to the warlord who claims this is his his property. The night before, the city had sent in bulldozers to break down the illegal walls. The survey team checked to make sure no one was living there, but they made a mistake. One of the walls ended up crushing a woman and her children. People organized a protest against her father. That night, Rangina had made a special dinner for her father because her brother-in-law was visiting from Canada. But instead, her father was off having dinner with the Karzai brothers, and he arrived late. And I was angry because I said, I went all you know my way to make you a nice meal, and we wanted you to have a meal with us as a family. Instead, you went and spent it with the Karzai brothers. And he said, well, I have to talk about this land. And I I just started yelling and screaming, saying the heck with 
Kandahar, the heck with the people of Kandahar, the heck with this land and the heck with the government of Karzai and the heck with this whole mess. So I, I went to sleep angry that night, didn't speak to him, woke up in the morning, made breakfast for him. And he, you know, he had his smile that he always had. I went back to the kitchen and by the time I was getting back out, he had already left. He had already left the compound. And I saw that he only had one egg and not the second. So he had left half of his breakfast and he had half a cup of tea and he hadn't finished. And this is not normal. He, he, like he was always a breakfast man and he loved his breakfast. Not long after, she was embroidering wedding clothes with her mother and her sisters. My mother went to her room and then frantically is running back and telling me, call your father, call your father. He's not answering. And I, I was just so, I, I was, I didn't know how to respond. I'm like, well, what's going on? She's like, I don't know what's going on. Just call your father. He's not picking up my phone. So I call my father's phone. Of course, nobody's picking up. And then I call his driver and his driver picked up the phone and I said, give the phone to my father. And he said, give the phone to your husband. And I yelled at him. I'm like, give the phone to my father. I want to talk to my father. And he keeps saying, give the phone to your husband. Finally, she handed the phone over to her husband. Without saying a word, he hung up and told Rangina and her mother to get in the car. They started driving to the hospital. And in my in my head, I'm just still playing the scenario of we're going to go to the emergency room and the doctors are operating on him and we'll have him there. And then the driver, instead of gearing or turning the wheel to the emergency room area, he turns to another direction and I, and I yell at him. I yell at him because I'm sitting right behind the driver. I almost like grabbed him and hit him on the shoulder. I'm like, why aren't you going to the emergency room? And he, he doesn't say anything. He just turns the wheel. And then the next thing I see is this huge white, white sign with red writing on it that says mortuary. And I think that's when I realized that my dad was no longer. Gulam Haidar Hamidi was killed by a suicide bomber. He was one of over 500 people in Kandahar who were assassinated in the years since the American invasion. Officially, his murder was blamed on the Taliban. But Rangina has never believed that. She blames the warlord-infested Afghan government for her father's killing. Unfortunately, in a country where so much chaotic and unlawful things happened, my dad's death was one of those incidents that led to the entire chaos, or is part of a whole national chaos. After her father's murder, Rangina returned for a time to the U.S., but she felt compelled to come back to Afghanistan. 
And something in me told me that, no, he would want me to come back. Her story was far from done. She would go on to have a much bigger role to play in the future of her country. Meanwhile, Asadullah Khalid and Abdul Razak rose to ever greater heights. Journalists and human rights groups have pointed to the corruption and abuses perpetrated by our Afghan government allies as one of the main causes for the eventual collapse of Afghanistan. But underneath that lies an assumption that if we had been able to find better allies, empower the right people, that maybe things would have gone better. Maybe the Taliban wouldn't be in power today. But there's another way to look at it. That to fight these kinds of wars, we need men like Asadullah Khalid and Abdul Razak. We need the strong men and the warlords. That the brutality is the point. Here's Matthew Akins. It's always, from a very Machiavellian sense, it's always bad to, to do these kinds of abuses. Maybe they're part of what counterinsurgency actually is, and we've just lied to ourselves about it with all this talk of hearts and minds and, in effect, you know, had people like Razak doing the dirty work of the war. But Ahmed Mulgari believed that Afghans deserved better, and he wanted to make sure that the people in power could never say that they didn't know about the abuses that these men were perpetrating. I believe that we owe an apology to the people of Afghanistan. So in 2010, he decided to tell the world the truth about exactly what was happening in Kandahar. That's next time on Commons. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. Right now, we have a special offer for our listeners. Get all of Canada Land's podcasts ad-free for three months for only $3. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can now support all of Canada Land's political podcasts, including Commons, Wag the Dug, and The Backbench for only $2.99 a month. And leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Matthew Akins, Graham Smith, Sharif Sharaf, David Puglesi of the Ottawa Citizen, Stephanie Levitz of the Canadian Press, CBC News, Human Rights Watch, Richard A. Opal Jr. at the New York Times, and so many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azria. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.